everyone. It's Moshe Wanunu. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. We've been bringing you a number of interviews these past two weeks about all things space, history, politics. I have one more for you today, and I promise on Monday I will be back with our regular news podcast. With that said, I want to dive into a topic today I hear from a lot of you about, polling. Can we trust the polls? Why do you post these polls all the time? Uh, have things been fixed since the presidential elections? And so with all these questions about the accuracy of the polls, which ones to trust, et cetera, et cetera, I have brought on one of the leading polling experts, leading pollsters in the country. His name is Anthony Salvanto. He's the CBS News Director of Elections and Surveys. Anthony and I worked closely together during my nearly decade at CBS News. He is in charge of all things polling, uh, running all the numbers, and he's the one who runs the decision desk on election night that determines when networks call the winner. He also wrote a book about all of this called Where Did You Get This Number? A Pollster's Guide to Making Sense of the World. I'll link to it in the show notes. That'll give you even more background if you're interested after this conversation. I spoke to Anthony recently about how pollsters get a true picture of the mood and sentiment of the country and why 1,000 people, yes, that's right, 1,000 Americans is the right sample size for both a city the size of Chicago and the entire U.S. population. He explains how this works statistically. He also has a way of breaking things down to really help you understand things, even if you don't have a master's degree in statistics. He breaks it down like this, that we need to think about the accuracy of a poll the same way we get a sense for how a bowl of soup or spaghetti sauce tastes with just one spoonful. He says to think about polling in the same way. He'll explain that analogy in our interview. Anthony will also talk about how the internet has changed polling for the better and respond to critics who say uh, that the media just can't get it right. We also dive into which populations in the U.S. are the most difficult to capture and why polls these days, despite some of the criticism, have more power than ever before. Before we get started here, a reminder to follow or subscribe to this podcast. Just hit the follow button on whatever app you're listening to us on. It, it will ensure that you don't miss a single episode. Also, be sure to leave us a review if you can. Every single review makes a difference and helps this podcast grow and move up the rankings. With that, my conversation on all things polling pleased today to have Anthony Salvanto, a former colleague of mine, someone I consider a good friend, uh, the head of the CBS News Decision Desk, uh, head of election and surveys at CBS News, really the person that everyone there now for the better part of 20 years, Anthony, turns to to get uh, a sense of what Americans believe on what topics, what polls to trust. Um, you, of course, have done a number of midterm elections, presidential elections, uh, travel to Iowa, New Hampshire, um, and you've been polling on issues as technology has evolved over the last 20 years. So there are folks with a lot of questions in terms of how you take into account the internet, cell phones, um, lack of trust in the media, et cetera, and how you do your job, Anthony. So I am pleased and appreciate you uh, spending some time with me today. It is great to talk to you, Mosh, um, and it's great to talk to everybody. Uh, about a subject that uh, obviously I, I enjoy a great deal and uh, I'm really pleased to be here. Thank you. I want to begin um, with kind of the 10,000 foot view, because every time uh, we post a, a poll on Instagram, uh, you know, the first question I get from a number of people is, oh, why should I trust this one? Uh, the polls are inaccurate these days. So I'd love to just get a sense from you um, on what the state of our polling is nationally in states and why and which polls Americans can still trust. Yeah, um, the state is that it's good. And uh, that's despite the fact that yes, inevitably some people say and ask the very reasonable question, how does this work and why should I trust it? All of which I'm happy to talk about. The, the starting point for this is 
under the how it works banner, a poll works by creating or assembling a microcosm of the group that you're talking about in the poll. So if it's a national poll, it's going to be a microcosm of the country and all of its facets. And that's demographically, that's attitudinally. And that's the way in which you represent the whole. The analogy that's long been used in polling is a bowl of soup. That came from, from, from Gallup back in the day. And you know, in order to understand how a soup tastes, you don't have to eat the whole bowl. You can take a spoonful. The better the analogy I prefer is my grandmother's spaghetti sauce, and I use this in the book. Um, you know, you might have wanted to eat all of it, but you had to share. You got a bowl of spaghetti sauce, and so you you ate some, and you knew that it was good, and it was very good. But what the mechanism for how that works was that the particular grain of salt you got in your bowl was this effectively the same as the one that your, you know, uncle or, or your, you know, a friend that over there got in, in his or her bowl. And the little piece of garlic was the same as the piece of garlic that was in the other bowl. The way in which you do that in a poll is that you put together a demographically representative microcosm of the country and attitudinally as well. So one of the you know standing examples I often use is people go, oh well, you know how many Republicans did you talk to? How many how many Democrats did you talk to? And you didn't talk to anybody like me. But I'm I'm special. And and how does it? I wasn't I wasn't polled. And I always say you're special, yes, but not in the ways that we are necessarily looking to measure. So. If you are a Republican, well, almost half the country, you know, voted for President Trump and you've got millions and millions of Republicans out there who would have answered most of these questions the same way that you would have. So you can be represented by the Republican that we did talk to and the same for the Democrat. And you say, well, you didn't talk to me. Okay, well, if you're a Democrat, we did talk to Democrats and they answered the questions, I'll bet, the same way that you would have answered them. And so those Democrats represented you in this survey. And so we get a portrait of the country from that microcosm that we've assembled and people are alike enough. And, you know, I like to think that also reminds us that we share certain commonalities with millions of other people, whether or not they may be in the majority or, or, or not, but they're in there. And it's assembling that microcosm that really makes a poll work, Moshe. Yeah, no, when you talk about the microcosm, we're talking about sample size, the number of people you talk to, right? And so I noticed in some of the national polls recently, it's somewhere, and typically usually see two to 3,000 people. How did, how did pollsters come to the number um, that two to 3,000 uh, folks that you speak to could represent the 300 plus million American viewpoints? That is a great question. And the sample size is one often very good way to measure whether or not your microcosm is going to be effective. And the way that that works is it, it, it began when you think of random sampling in the case, if you do a poll that involves a random sample at a certain point, the 
continued process of sampling someone, pulling people from a national, whether it's a voter file or a national phone records or a panel for that matter, at a certain point, the likelihood that you would get something extraordinarily different from the actual population value. Were you to keep on sampling and keep on uh, you know, taking, taking people's opinions, likelihood that you would get something that's extraordinarily, diff- extraordinarily different from the actual population value drops down dramatically as you start to approach 500, 1,000, even 200,000 people. If you think about it in sort of another example, going to a casino and playing a game of chance, a game of roulette, the likelihood that you would draw draw something, some extraordinary set of cards or land on the same number over and over and over again is of course infinitesimally low. And so if the population out there is, let's say 75% of people think the economy is, is terrible. The chances that you would do a poll and repeatedly sample over and over again, people who only thought the economy was good when they're only a quarter of the population is very low. And as you continue to do that, the chances that you would have a whole sample that is also, you know, really off from that 75-25 split is again, really, really low. So it's about repeating the sample, repeating the measure over and over again, and ultimately then really lowering and dropping your chances of getting something way off. And that's where that's where we start to get the concept of margin of error. And that starts to swing, you know, maybe it's maybe it's three points to either side. That's why you do, um, to answer your opening question, that's why you go, try to go to um, about a thousand people, because that's the point at which your margin of error, your chances of being off by more than three or four points really starts to decline dramatically. In fact, gets to the point where you can be confident that it's within um, that small margin of error range. And when you do a thousand people, you're talking about like, if I'm trying to pull Chicago, you know, 3 million people, and I'm trying to pull the United States of America, 300 plus million people, is a thousand pretty much that magic number, if you will, to get a gauge for either of those? If you're looking to draw a random sample, that's been often the benchmark because that's the point, regardless of other uh, of other things, that's the point at which your likelihood, again, of getting something that just by the sake of sampling is way off from the true population value, the true population parameter. That's the point at which it starts to decline to the point where the industry kind of has been accepting of the idea of having a margin of error um, of around about three to around about three to five points of either side. Now we we can get a little more specific here, and maybe this will lead to another question, but a little more specific here about the methods of doing sampling. And I should segue here because that's theoretically on a random sample. Um, but what we're in the industry is increasingly doing is sampling from voter files, sampling off of large national panels, which are assembled of people who are willing and able to take surveys, validated voter lists, etc. Um, all of those things are about how you put it together. But what I'm talking about and what you're asking about is, in theory, how a sample works and how you get down within a margin of error. 
Given how close elections have been recently, uh, and even when you go down to like the congressional district level, et cetera, we're talking about you know smaller groups of people. It might be 50-50, it might be very close. Um, to take your soup analogy, uh, there's always a chance when I take a spoonful of soup that I might not get all the ingredients, right? If you know we've put if it's a veggie soup and there were you know we're missing the carrots in this happened uh, spoonful, if you will. Um, how do you ensure, especially when it comes to certain minority groups and certain opinions, how do you ensure you get those uh, you know specific ingredients in there and ensure that it really is a representative, especially when it comes to some of these close elections? So this raises a really important point um, about representation and also about the kind of data that we have today for benchmarks, um, really for any given geographical area, especially. We have today at our disposal, first you have the census. Okay, so the census gives you the kind of baseline parameters for the country's demographics, where people live, all of which most pollsters will use as a baseline to know and gauge that you have the right proportion of everyone in a given sample. You know the demographics of a state, you know the demographics of a congressional district, et cetera. The other part of this is if you're looking at voters, you also have nowadays voter files. They're publicly available and there are private companies that augment them in various ways, but they're publicly available. So you know the number of voters in a given district, in a given state. Anonymized, you, anonymized. Well, um, they are for the pollster's sake, right? If you take a yeah. poll, your, your answers are anonymous. Um, publicly available voter records have a person's name on it. And there are some polls who will call up and ask for somebody by a name. Um, and, you know, campaigns do that a lot, right? Because they want to know that someone in particular is going to turn out. And they do that kind of micro micro targeting, which is another um, part of this industry that we can we can certainly talk about because it's very interesting. In the um, in the specifics of understanding whether or not you have a good sample, you have these baseline parameters. You have this information. A voter file might know everyone's age because when you sign up to to you know register to vote you give your age right and so we also know that so if you want to know the right age distribution of a sample or a district you can get that and make sure that it represents the voter file now if in the case of doing this in the course of doing a sample as as always almost always happens your sample isn't perfectly proportioned the way let's say let's use age as the example the the file shows, um, you can apply weights to that. And pollsters do that, and we should talk about how they do it. But you can apply weights so that someone's internal weight within the poll is adjusted so that they have to represent maybe a little more people, maybe they have to represent a few fewer people, but the overall poll is proportioned to those targets. So so if you know you call a certain area and you know that typically this area tends to have an older population, but in your set, you know, in your calls, you didn't get as many, then a, a fewer group of those, let's say 65 and above will represent a larger group because you know that the population itself is that large. Right. The, the back to this idea of representation, it, you might ideally have a one-to-one -one representation for any given group, but realistically, you know, every person in that poll in that case might have to represent 1.5 or might have to represent two people 
in that group. And that always happens. And when you look at polling and you see polls even in the news, all of them have weights on them. And you can, if you want to sort of be polling expert, go through and look at how that was done. What were the weighting parameters? And what were the things that they tried to match within the, within the sample? Was it weighted to census parameters? Okay, we know they tried to represent, you know, in this case, maybe the country or a district based on the census. Was it weighted to age, to other demographics? All of those things in the pollster should, should be able to say what they weighted the poll to and what they were trying to represent. But like, for example, if you know a certain percentage of the population is Asian or of a certain age or um, Latino, et cetera, do, do you, as you're conducting the poll, say, guys, we really have to call more and get a better sense of this population or this demographic before I feel comfortable with these numbers? Well, some polls will look for particular types of voters. And that's, but there again, that's a poll in which you're trying to sample, let's say, a, a population or a subpopulation. Um, sometimes you will do what's called oversampling, right? If you're conducting a poll of, say, older Americans and you're trying to get uh, more older Americans in your survey, then you can go through the voter list and oversample them and make sure you get, say, more of them in your sample and weight them accordingly. The And again, here I come back to let the have the pollster disclose and show you how it was set up so that when you're doing the sample and when you're putting together this microcosm, what was it you were trying to achieve? And what was the population that you're trying to represent? And that can go for anything for which you have an external benchmark or an external target. Um, you know, the way this, this plays out a lot and, and sometimes becomes a back and forth, people watching this will, will certainly see arguments as we get closer to a campaign over were there enough Democrats or were there enough Republicans in a, in a poll? And pollsters will argue about that. And you say, well, we used, you know, somebody can say, well, we used a, a list of registered Democrats and the list of registered Republicans. And that's how we know how many Republicans and Democrats there are. And someone else will pull back and say, wait a second, that's, that's an attitudinal thing, right? Somebody could think of themselves as a Democrat, but they're not necessarily registered as one. And so another pollster will go, okay, well, our benchmark is going to be, uh, you know, a constant survey of people who, consider themselves Democrats, and we know what those numbers are from, you know, many, many years of, of doing surveys. Other pollsters will take that and say, well, we'll use the exit poll, because that's a good benchmark for how many Dems and Republicans there are. And others will say, we don't use that at all, right? We just let the sample fall where it will and let people tell us which one there are. All of those things have their arguments. And when people are looking at those, seeing those debates back and forth, and when people are um, looking at polls, you should at least understand and allow the pollster should be able to explain which one they use and how they put that sample together. Right. When you look at a poll graphic, uh, you can see if it's registered voters or likely voters or all Americans, that that would be a key category you would say that people should look to. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, you said the the kind of really important words, likely voters. As you get closer to a campaign, here again, you're having the pollsters, I mean, there's art and science to this, and each pollster will make a determination about what they consider a likely voter. 
Now, sometimes that's a very straightforward one. People tell you in the poll they're going to vote. Okay, they're a likely voter. But others will try to get, dare I say, more sophisticated with it. They will look at whether a voter has voted in the past. And because we know over time that vote history leads to voting is habitual, vote history leads to um, future voting in many cases, they'll give a slightly higher weight in their likely voter model to people with more habitual vote histories. Um, other times they will use a scale, like how likely are you to vote? And they'll give a little more weight to people who say very likely than people who say mm, probably, because when you go back and validate after elections and check, it turns out the people who are eh, kind of on the fence, maybe they do actually vote 50-50 or 60-40, as opposed to people who tell the pollster, yeah, I'm definitely voting. And it turns out they show up at a 90% rate. So you can you can justify having a different weight within your likely voter model. That is, that's very important as you get uh, closer to campaigns. And I know it sounds like a lot. And it's somebody who wants to be, you know, a savvy poll reader has to go through all this. But I would bring it back around and say, the good pollster should be able to tell you and does tell you exactly what which assumptions and which um, of those parameters were built into their their polling model and their likely voter model. And that's something that's presented to the, the viewer as um, and, and is, is very different for almost every poll you see. I'd, um, I'd like to get into technology and how it's evolved, because there was a time not so long ago that all polls, most polls were done via landline. Um, mm -hmm. And then cell phones came about, internet came about. What is the gold standard these days? How do you get around getting a gauge for uh, people now that most people are on cell phone? A lot of people don't have landlines anymore. And as an added uh, item, the amount of skepticism and spam calls and non-responsive. How, how do you adjust? Um, how do you do polls in 2022, Anthony? You, you do them via the internet. And um, I want to be really clear here. That doesn't mean you just open the door and let everybody click through a billion. Right. I've times. taken I've taken Elon Musk Twitter polls. Those are not. Yeah. No, that's, that's not, not a scientific yeah. sample, right? Yeah. Um, and and it's fun, but it's not it's not a scientific sample. So so let's trace the the evolution or the changes in polling, if you will. There was a time in the early mid let's say early mid 20th century, when the way to do a poll was to go to somebody's address, knock on the door. Um, and so door to door polling was done mostly. It, it, eventually, people got telephones, not everyone had a telephone. And that was an issue, you couldn't really do a poll, a good poll over the phone, because it was wealthier people who had them. But ultimately, everybody had a telephone, um, or almost everybody. And pollsters, um, including um, pioneers at CBS News, it made it found a way to get the the areas that had the the right codes um, for the phones and were able to efficiently call people and start doing polls on the telephone and that could get a representative sample again because you had that coverage but over time because as you said, you've got spam calls, you've got call blockers, you've got robocalls, et cetera. The response rates for calls, landlines, that's sort of gone, gone by the boards on cell phones have dropped dramatically in recent years. Um, you know, studies have put it well under 10%, uh, getting it now even under five or 6%. And that means that it's much, much harder at a minimum, a huge, huge time commitment and expense to try and get 
a representative sample when you've got response rates that are that low. So what, what people by and large, in my experience, do today, including what we do, what I do today, is they're used um, massive and massive panels of people who uh, can and are willing to take a survey. And we're talking about hundreds of thousands, million people on some of these. The panels are set up uh, often with recruitment so that they could represent or look like the country. They're very large and you can subsample from those panels, get your microcosm, and then people can take it either via email when um, the pollster selects them for the survey and they get an email and say, will you take this poll? Or they can take it via an app on their on their cell phone, on their phone, and they say, okay, you've been selected for the poll and they answer the questions and they can see them right in front of them. There's a lot of advantages to this that technology makes possible. One is that you can get very large sample sizes because it's very efficient to do these. Two is that the person can just interact with the poll directly, right? Here's the question. It's on your phone. You can take your time with it and answer how you, how you want. You don't have to feel sort of pressured for time while you're talking to somebody on the phone. And uh, a third is that uh, computer technology and processing power allows us to do these samples and also weight them properly so that they are representative, even when you have this massive amount of data coming in. But I would say to button this up again, that this is still the pollster sampling the people who are going to take the survey, not just opening the floodgates and letting people online click. And you want to be careful when you say an online poll, it, it is a still a representative sample. It's the pollster putting it together using the technology available today. That is having the, all these people impaneled, knowing who they are. Um, oftentimes, their voter registration has been validated, so that the panel company knows um, who it is that they're dealing with exactly. And those folks are being assembled to make again. It all comes back to that microcosm. But that's how uh, that's how we do polling today, and it's also one of the reasons you can see us do them very quickly, uh, because it's it's you can get to a lot of people, and it's very convenient. Throughout the history of polling, pollsters have had to go where people are. Right, that's our job. We're there to talk to people. So when people were in their homes, we went door to door. When people were on the phone, we went to the phone. And now, of course, people are online. And we make the we use those technologies to make it convenient for them as so, well. So all major national reputable polling organizations or polls or news organizations are using almost ex exclusively at this point online polls. Many are not all. There are still folks who are putting in the time and expense to go through the telephone, and um, and again they get they get general responses and they get numbers which are not dramatically different from what you're getting online, but the speed with which they can do it, as well as internally the, the cost and the timing, right? You don't necessarily want for a news poll, in my view, to be um, polling, you know, over the course of 10 days, you know, or 15 days, because things can change. Because opinions change. Yeah. Yeah. So, so a lot of them are using the, um, the, the online. But having said that, again, done properly and with care and time, 
uh, phone polling is still working. It's just a lot more labor intensive um, given those response rates. And a lot of folks still still do them. Um, university polls are still doing them. And uh, again, you can see a lot of issues there. You can see a lot of variance from, from point to point, uh, perhaps because they can't get uh, as large a sample size, but there are, still, um, there are still a lot of very good pollsters who are doing things by phone, yes. If, if I wanna be a poll participant, this is a question I got from several people. Um, mm -hmm. How do I go about registering with you to participate in the upcoming CBS News poll? You would go, you wouldn't register to be part of the CBS News poll, um, but you could register for a, a large online panel. Um, there are many companies who, who do that. Um, we, we work in our partnership, we work with a company called YouGov and uh, there are others who, who uh, do these, these large panels and you would register or sign up with one of them. And so you, so YouGov, are there other ones that people should be on the lookout for? There, there are, um, there, there are a, a number of them. I don't know that, that here I'd sort of go through the list cause it's, Got it's it. pretty, it's pretty large. Um, but I think that you can certainly find them and it, there's a sort of couple of ways that can work. One is that you might be at some point recruited for one. If you're sampled by these, these panel management companies and they are looking for people to be on their survey, you might be invited by mail, you might be invited by email, you would opt in to be on that panel. Now that doesn't mean you're going to end up in anybody's poll in particular, unless you're subsampled out of the panel to be part of it. But once you're on the panel, then you are eligible or potentially eligible to be in the poll for a major research group that uses that panel to uh, to draw their samples. And and just to put a button on the phone versus internet thing, I remember a time not so long ago when um, I would talk to a polling unit uh, at some of the networks I work at, including CBS. So, oh, it's an online poll. I, I don't know if we trust that. Is Would you say online polls at this point, given technology, are the gold standard? Do you trust them more than anything else or? Well, I, operationally, you can see what I do. And that is the fact that we do the bulk of our, if not all of our polling using the online panels now. Um, so that's, that's sort of proof in the pudding. But as far as what, but to answer your question about what I think is a standard, the standard doesn't necessarily depend on the way in which you do the, the phone versus internet, uh, the way in which you do the interview, the standard depends on how well you assemble your sample. The standard is whether or not you have properly assembled that microcosm of the folks you're trying to represent. And that is that really is the core work of the pollster, regardless of which technology you choose for it. How do I know as a consumer without having to spend too much time? It's not my profession, right? I have a job. I have other things to do as a consumer of polls. Um, and I see headlines. This percent of Americans believe why. Um, what is a good place, a quick guide for me to know whether this pollster did a good job or not? Um, part of that is using the news organization that you trust ostensibly should be 
a bit of a gatekeeper there for you. So if you see something on CBS News, I've ostensibly said this sample was done and properly represents the audience it's trying to report. So part of my job is to do that work for you as I, as we should, and as I should, um, if you want to go deeper, then you do have to do the work of looking at, first of all, whether the poll had a full disclosure of who it was they sampled and what the, what the method was for putting together that. that and, and oftentimes you can see that like in, in, in a story, there's a link, it's like a PDF yeah. and it might be a, a large document, right? That's right. It is often a large document and it seems, you know, a, a lot of heavy reading and, and I get that. But the, the fact is that the, towards the end of that document, you're going to see a few key things like the sample was weighted to, and it's going to list those parameters, right? Census based, blah, blah, blah. Um, that you can tell right away is a pollster trying to show you what they did and how they put it together. And that's probably a really good indication. By contrast, you will see, look, this often comes from, um, you know, internal campaign polling. You've seen this, we've all seen this, and they give you a number. Our candidate is really winning in our internal polls. Well, show us the poll. Um, no, that's internal poll. Okay, right? Now, does it mean it's wrong? No, it doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means you can't see it, so you can't necessarily examine how they put together that sample. Maybe they didn't weight it to what the voter file really looks like, and that's the reason that, you know, they say one candidate is ahead of another. That's where you start to go, again, doesn't mean it's wrong, because there's a lot of innovative work being done, you know, outside news organizations and behind the scenes, but... Yeah if they're not willing to, to disclose that. So, so, so this takes me to the next uh, line of questions and it takes me to a meeting. And I don't know if you were there, Anthony, when Trump campaign staff came into a conference room about a week before the election in 2016. Um, I remember Bob Schieffer being there because he, he has to ask a few questions, but they said, listen, our internals are showing we're gonna win in 2016. And at the time there were a number of polls uh, that said, no, this looks like this is gonna be a Hillary victory. Um, on election night, and they said, no, our internals are showing, et cetera. Um, obviously, we know how that all turned out. And so that leads to the larger question, which is lessons from 2016, lessons from 2020, um, and how kind of the most recent politics have shifted to a certain extent what you do, what you've seen in terms of responses, um, and what uh, folks have gotten right and not right um, over the course of the past couple cycles. So 2016 always comes up in the when you're talking about polling, and I think fairly so. It, it surprised a lot of people. And what what happened to boil down 2016 is that people who follow this closely know that when Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, it actually meant that many of the national polls, including our own, were actually quite accurate. But there's a difference between what the polling and the statistics are doing and what people are receiving in terms of information. And I think it's important to note that that surprise that a lot of people felt came from a variety of sources. One was a not, in my experience, talking to people about this, a not thorough explanation or understanding of the electoral college, which more people today follow closely than perhaps they did in you know, 2015, 2016, because that's obviously what elects the president and President Trump won in the electoral college. 
Um, the second part of that was that in the case of 2016, you saw a late break towards then candidate Trump. And it underscores the fact I always like to make that in a poll, ask the pollster and try to find out if they see the range of possibilities, not in a statistical sense, but in the sense of which voters are considering moving and which voters could move. In the case of 2016, very specifically, there were a large number of Republicans who were telling pollsters, and we reported this, that they were uneasy with Trump as a candidate, but didn't like Hillary Clinton and their Republicans. So which way might you imagine they move? Well, the good pollster, and I tried to do this as did others, would explain to you, look, these are conservative people who might come home to vote for Donald Trump. And if the narrative kind of got away from that, the narrative was like, well, no, they gave up on him and they're not coming back. Well, that's, a, that's punditry, right? But in the polling, you could see that there was this potential group of people who might come back to Trump. And in fact, they did. So that's an example, again, of in a poll, understand and have the pollster explain the possibilities, not just in statistical terms, but in opinion terms in terms of what people might change or do or think, because they do, because they do change. And campaigns matter in that sense. May not be a huge effect, right? Still going to get, you know, 90% partisanship, et cetera, but campaigns do matter. Um, so that's also instructive. And then you think about 2020 a little bit, there were a lot of no numbers, even though, yes, the polls said Biden, you know, quote, would win, and, and he did, there were a number of polls that overestimated his margin. Of, right. And, and, and I wanted the state polls here. I mean, like he looked like I mean, some polls were having him blow out Florida and he lost that pretty early in the night. Um, mm -hmm. So just <clears throat> sampling on a national scale, it sounds like we're pretty we're pretty on point in terms of 16 and 20, especially when it comes to the popular vote, because that's what it is. But the state polls, it seemed like there was a, a repeat performance of of um, of being off. There was a. A first of all, a dramatic difference in 2020 between people who voted by mail and early and people who voted on election day. And this brings in another key point in a poll about likely voters and about turnout. And it's not a throwaway line when pollsters say it's going to come down to turnout. You should be very specific about what you think the range of possibilities is for people who show up on election day, as opposed to those who've already banked their votes and banked their, sent in their ballots. Because you can get a really good estimate out of the election, out of the early vote. You get a really good estimate out of the early vote because the state will tell you how many people have voted early. And you can poll those folks, but you have good benchmarks to use there because that's a matter of public record. Whereas on election day, you've got potentially this surge of turnout that we did see from, um, from a lot of, of Trump supporters. And that's a place where the likely voter model really comes into play. And so you've got, in this case, you've got a big election day turnout, heavily Republican, that then started to narrow what would have been a larger gap for Joe Biden. And we reported that. We reported that as a possibility. I don't think everybody did. But again, it's important to say to the pollster, 
um, what are the range of, of, of potential outcomes here? And not just take well, margin of error, it's sampling, you know, maybe in here, maybe in here, but it's specifically politically, what could happen that you're seeing? And 2020 is a good example of that. The fact is we did see a large turnout on election day. Was it enough? No, it wasn't enough, but it certainly made things closer. So, so what to put a button on this, what is the verdict from 2016, 2020, as far as you're concerned as a pollster? And what lessons have you learned uh, going into future cycles from the past couple of election cycles? Um, we still can do very good work and people should follow this. And I say that with a little more data, more recent to back it up. Um, look at other things that you can benchmark. For example, um, vaccination rates in the country. Polling has been going on on COVID, on vaccines um, throughout the pandemic. And the polling for people telling you that they're vaccinated or going to get vaccinated has tracked extremely closely with the actual CDC numbers. Now, that's another external validation for polling that a lot of us like to point out in part because when people look at partisan polling, they're often doing it through a rooting lens. And that's fair, but you often find that people, even if you ask them after the election, how do you think the polls did, right? Were things, were they good or bad? If people are disappointed, they're more likely to say, ah, they were terrible. But if they were, you know, if they're happy and their side won, they're more likely to say, oh yeah, everything was, everything was fine. So you want to see things, you know, objectively with which a lot of us, you know, in fairness, don't can't always do. And that's another place where you can, again, you can look at how polling is doing today and show with external validation um, that things are tracking pretty well. And the other part of this going forward is that you should, the polling has more power, I think, than it ever has to really understand why people think the way they do. And we need to emphasize that, I certainly try to, because it's in many ways the most important part. If you understand how people come to a decision, that's the power of understanding the public mind. And it's not just, I mean, ultimately we'll all find out who wins or who loses. And you wanna understand why people are thinking the way they are, which polling can do and a good poll can do. Any good poll will tell you not just what people are thinking, but answer the because part of that. They're thinking this because. That's how you see the dynamic. That's how you understand the country, which is, I think, ultimately our job to give voice to people and explain it to an audience. So we were just talking about some of the state polls, be, state polls being off. What, was that the wrong sample set? Like what what lessons are being learned there in terms of, especially when it comes to the state polls, which as we now know, the Electoral College is the key um, to winning the presidency. How do you ensure that when you poll Wisconsin, when you poll Michigan, when you poll Florida, that mm -hmm. uh, the numbers are even tighter and more accurate and more predictive than we've seen in previous cycles? Well, first ask yourself, what is it you want to know? Um, and this goes for a state poll and it certainly goes for a national poll or anything else. If what you want to know is very simply binary, who's going to win, okay? Um, there's a limit to what polling can do to help you with that. If you need to go and place a wager on somebody, whether it's because of margin of error, whether it's because we are in a very divided country where you see more and more elections, at least I do, that are coming right down to the wire at, at you know, 50-50 or 50.1 to 49, you know, um, 
if, if that's your need in terms of information, you have to accept that polling is going to have a margin of error. It's going to have variance from its ability to show how much turnout. You have to accept that things are going to change because of campaign dynamics, and there's going to be a limit. So that's, you know, we obviously try to do our best. But if you are after an understanding of the story, then we can be much more powerful. And this, again, goes for state polls and it goes for national ones or anything else. If you want to understand that a candidate needs a high turnout in order to win, polling can tell you that. If you need to understand that the economy is the thing on voters' minds, if you need to understand why it is that they're, say, supportive of sanctions on Russia and willing to pay more for gas prices uh, because they say that it's so important to stop Russia, as we found in a recent survey. That's an explanation of the public mind that we can still do very well at. And nobody quarrels if somebody says, like I said, you know, if somebody says the 75% think the economy is bad, nobody sits and goes, oh, no, 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 it must be 74. No, it's 73 and man, you must be off. Well, it might be, but that doesn't change the story. And it doesn't change what you ought to know and need So do you know. think there's a overemphasis on the predictive value of polls, that top line number when, uh, you know, like, well, you know, according to, uh, you know, in a month when the election happens, it's looking like, you know, 51-49 or 52-48. I mean, is that a frustration of yours as a pollster that there's so much emphasis is put on that top line number on the predictive value of that? I think it is uh, useful only to a point. And if I do my job right, you should hear me give much more emphasis to the explanation of why, to use your, in your example, that is simply a close race than to why one candidate is winning. And you will very rarely, I hope maybe, maybe never, say any candidate is going to win. Because again, our job as a pollster is to explain the public mind. And if you want me to say, oh, this candidate is up two points, therefore they're going to win. You know, I say, look, that's not, that's not news. That's crystal ball. Okay. That's, that, yep. that's, that's future prediction. And that's not, we're not Vegas handicappers. And we think we do something quite frankly, more important. And that is in an era where we've got a closely divided country, where many people think that there are big, big stakes in everything we do, that we try to understand each other. So I would say, look, we've got a close race. And here are the, here are the possibilities. I should be able to define the possibilities. And I will take, take on that. Um, but you should understand that this is a dynamic. And you live in a dynamic society in a dynamic world. Um, speed around here because we're in the final 15 minutes and I want to get to a few of the viewer questions. One, uh, a couple of times I got, how safe is the data? Can it be manipulated by campaigns? Can it be manipulated by foreign governments? Um, it's safe. You know, it's safe. The, the, it's, a, it's a good question. And uh, I would say that it is safe and that it is, you know, protected. It is anonymized. Um, so we, you know, and I think the panel companies, this is really where more they would, they would speak to that too. Um, take every technical precaution to ensure that. Um, this obviously, this question has presumption in it, but call me Carly B asks, how do you feel when you are wrong? 
define wrong. Well, right. If, right. If, 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 and no, and I, and I mean, sincerely, if you, if you say, and there, look, there are times when we have done, um, it often happens in a say down ballot race, like a Senate race where our poll was off by different from uh, the range of possibilities that I thought were possible. Um, and in that case, it's, it's, you know, sometimes it's five, six points, seven points. That's, that's pretty wide. Um, when that happens, it's a learning experience. And like any scientist, you should go back and see what things you put in your model that turned out not to be the case, that turned out not to be impactful, and what things can you learn from the voting data that show you something about people's behavior that you didn't see before. So you should always take it as a learning experience, or at least we try to. We've seen a lot of brand new voters in 2016, 2020. How has that impacted how you do your job? It's a really important uh, question. What you try to do is uh, look at the voter files, see who has registered, understand the changes demographically that that brings in terms of size, in terms of expected vote. Um, so the technology for that allows us to keep up on it, um, but it's, it's an extremely important consideration. And oftentimes, you know, the narrative is always kind of fighting the last war, including in punditry a lot. And you have to always raise the flag and say, wait a second, folks, this state has shifted population. This, this CD has shifted population a lot. And, um, and so that, that becomes extremely important, um, extremely important. Um, we've seen, obviously, um, a lot of criticism of the media. Um, we've seen skepticism of the media. Um, obviously, a lot of media organizations do polls. Uh, to what extent are you, have you gotten the sense, this whole idea of not being able to capture the Trump voter, uh, people on the right who are either skeptical uh, are distrustful um, of the media and its polls. How do you effectively capture um, the Trump voter uh, and the Republicans moving forward? It's always a concern. It's a concern for every kind of voter. There's um, There are kinds of folks who, because of the time, because of the energy, the motivation that they have, are uh, harder to get in a poll. Um, some say it's uh, maybe it's the Trump voter or the folks on the right who don't trust the media. I think there's I know there's limited evidence of that, that it may often be more a case of turnout. But having said that, always a concern. Young people are harder to get to take a poll. They are doing other things. They have they don't have time for all of this. And they sometimes tend to vote um, to the left or Democratic. And that's a concern. Um, people who are more mobile, who are moving, maybe they haven't registered to vote yet in their new address or. Right. I was going to say COVID. How, how is the last year like impacted what you do to get a better sense? Because even the census data is pre a lot of that's pre coronavirus. We're going to lean a lot on state and county updates from the voter files to see once people start to register. But demographically, for things that aren't related to voting, um, it's something we have to keep up on. It's it's really important because you're right. There's been a massive move. There's been people, you know, outflow from some states like California into the Sun Belt. This is continuing to go on, um, and we have to stay on top of it. There are updates. You know, the census does updates. Uh, states do updates. And so part of our job behind the scenes is staying up to date on that as best we can. 
uh, because it is. Again, we talked about dynamic earlier. It's not just dynamic in terms of attitudes. It's dynamic in terms of people moving around. How do other countries do this? This is a question I got from two people. Um, mm-hmm. Is America different in terms of how we poll? Are there w- ways that other countries are polling uh, that you're like, oh, those are interesting and innovative? Um, where where do we fall in kind of the uh, polling globally? Oh, that's a great question. And a big part of the difference comes in what you're measuring in terms of the political system. So in countries that are, say, multi-party democracies, um, you obviously have something different to, to use as opposed to, you know, us where we've got these states and we've got the electoral colleges, it's the electoral college, et cetera. Um, and we talked about that earlier, how that, you know, how that applies. Um, uh, online is often used in state in uh, countries that have a robust, you know, inter- internet, cell phones, infrastructure, a lot throughout the, uh, the West. And we've, we see in, in other places, sampling can be a real challenge, uh, but sampling can be a challenge everywhere. So it really just depends state to state. But I would say, you know, the biggest thing that I see is, is as you see differences in the way the political system is set, set up, when we talk about, in particular, when we talk about voter polls, then you're seeing differences in the, the, the way it breaks down in the output um, and, and what determines, you know, what determines an election. Has there ever been a time where uh, you put a poll out there and the numbers came back and you're like, we, we can't publish this? No, not that I recall. No. Um, you know, it, it's a, uh, it, it's a case of, you know, you take your time, you try to do the sample correctly. And it's uh, always a case where, Again, there's there's disclosure where we talk about how we did the sampling and we try to be and this goes not only for polling, but on election night at the decision desk, this raises an important part. We try to be as transparent as possible so that when you see us get data, let's say we're covering a race and it's election night and we're looking at state reports and we're looking at an exit poll. I will tell you what I see in real time if asked, and and hopefully I am. And that's a place where you can see us be very transparent about what we think and why we think it. There aren't enough votes from this county, but there's a lot from here. But wait a second, he's performing, you know, 10% better in every single county than, you know, past members of that party have done. That's a pattern. And we're seeing a complete pattern. That that kind of transparency, I hope, is is part of what defines uh, the CBS News polling and decision desk. So it, you take me to the last topic, which is decision desk. Um, explain how that works. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, obviously, a lot was made in 2020. Fox called Arizona early. It really, you know, sort of changed the. Uh, I mean, I think days ahead of of other organizations who waited for all for more data to come in. How do you, as someone who runs the CBS decision desk, how do you make your decisions um, and and what triggers you to say, guys, we can call a state? Okay, so we have a number of tools at our disposal. Um, one is exit polling. One is sample precincts where we've gone and, and the pool has sent reporters to individual, individual vote precincts and gotten data from them, um, including turnout data. And of course, there's the county vote. Those are put into models and, you know, this is another hour of conversation, but 
But models effectively look for patterns. And one of the things I try to be very transparent about is that you can look for patterns in a number of different ways, but one way is to compare performance of a candidate, a dem or a rep versus the past, because things are very partisan, you can often see a pattern of overperformance or, uh, or underperformance at a certain point, And this isn't that different from a, you know, from a regular poll, at a certain point, you gain confidence that a pattern is clearly being established. You see it over and over and over again within a narrow range. That gives you confidence to call a race. Sometimes when it's a tighter race and you're waiting for a given uh, county or counties to report their votes, what you're doing is computing what the candidate who's trailing would need as a percentage of the remaining votes to catch up. And I'll tell you that too. Here's the outstanding vote. Candidate who's trailing needs 75% of the outstanding vote to catch up. And, you know, he or she is getting only, you know, 50% or 52% from here. So is it likely that that candidate is going to catch up? Well, let's see where it's from. Is it from an area that votes with that candidate's party? If they're a Democrat, is it from a Democratic county? If they're a Republican, is it from Republican counties? If it is, you go, well, maybe they could catch up and we'll tell you that. But if it's not, then you say, well, wait a second. You know, they've, they need, have this high hill to make up. You know, they're not going to, they haven't gotten 75% anywhere else. What's remaining is not from counties that typically support their party. That'll give you confidence that that candidate can or cannot catch up. Those are two, a couple of examples of the way in which you look for ways to gain confidence about the way that a race is trending. And I would only button it up by saying, we tell you along the way, which way we think a race is leaning, if it's likely, if it's a toss up, et cetera. Again, as a way of trying to be transparent so that you, the viewer sees what we see as we go. How competitive are you? To what extent do you let calls by other organizations impact how quickly you need to call something? It doesn't because my my duty is to the viewer. If you've tuned in to watch us and watch me on and CBS on election night, what I owe you is an explanation of what's going on. The votes have been cast, right? This is this is an event that, in some respects, has taken place, and we're just watching the reveal. So my job is to let you see that reveal as clearly as I see it as it comes in. And what we want to do is give you a sense as we as we see it, uh, like I said, what those patterns are, but also those live updates. So that if something starts to lean a certain way, we're going to tell you that. If something moves back to toss up, we're going to tell you that as well. What do you love about polling, Anthony? I want to end here. Like you've you've made a career out of this. Mm -hmm. uh, you've written a book about it. You do it day in day out. Um, you live and breathe the numbers. Um, what, what led you to it and what do you love about it? What I love about it is being able to understand what people are thinking. We live in a democracy where people have a voice and polling is one way to give people a collective voice. And they're, uh, they're always interesting in what they think. It's always an interesting dynamic watching things change when they change. So it's endlessly fascinating to me to understand that. And as it applies to our political process, we're at a time where a lot of people see large scale changes 
in the world and in the country. How do they deal with that? And what does it mean for our country going forward? All of that, to me, stems from what people are thinking and doing. Again, because it's a democracy, but also because it puts a check on and it's a check against um, people you know, in government and in power, um, as has long been said of what polling is and what it does. It gives the people a voice, especially in between elections, and that plays an important role as well. Um, so that's been interesting for me. And look, doing it for a news organization means that in real time, I get to help play a small part in giving people an understanding of what their world looks like. And it's often a world that you cannot immediately see. We're surrounded by people who are very often like us, but the wider world may be people different from us. And I try to do my best to explain to someone what other folks are thinking and feeling in ways that they may not be able to experience directly. So if I can convey that, that experience and contextualize the news and how people are reacting to it, then um, it's a really fulfilling line of work. People have an impression that news organizations have a bias one way or another. Sometimes it, 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 it's because of the editorial section that they might have, especially if they're a newspaper. Have you ever been told one way or another by your bosses to um, you know, nudge a result in a certain direction or get a certain result? No, no. I, 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 my job is to convey that understanding of the public and give a fair hearing to the variety of opinions that are out there. And we began, uh, I began by asking you about the state of polling. You said it's good. Um, at the same time, you know, people are skeptical. Um, and so sometimes you guys get a bum rap. Just uh, mm -hmm. said, do you think that bum rap or that uh, skepticism is deserved? Uh, wh wh what do you make? And have there been any interesting anecdotes you've had uh, when you tell people what your job is and the reaction that you get? Yeah. Um, we do get a reaction um, when people are surprised by things. And I think that those of us in the industry can't have it both ways. We can't say we're so good at predicting things and then not expect a backlash if the predictions don't bear out. And that's why I think it's so important to keep reminding people um, in everything you do in all walks of life, you have some component where you care what other people think and you need to know what the world around you thinks in ways, again, that you can't necessarily see and feel and measure. And when we do our jobs well as pollsters, we give you that insight. We give you a little bit of understanding and that is where we ought to emphasize. And it doesn't frankly matter in some respects whether that's about an election or whether that's about an issue or a viewpoint of things facing us. What matters is we give you the tools to understand a world that you cannot see. And that's what we, where we should emphasize. And I think if we emphasize that and we stay on that point, then we do better in terms of response to our work. Have you changed the way you communicate about polls, um, especially in light of, of recent years? Um, yeah. I try to emphasize the things that I mentioned. I try to always give you, if I can't fill what I call the, you know, the, the because part of this, if I can't say people think this and it's because of that, that's the thing that I try to emphasize even more 
um, as well as being always reminded that there are people who very fairly have busy lives and tune in to the news for something that they don't necessarily follow this every day the way that those of us do, you know, in the business do and reminding myself that you have to give people that context and that baseline. And, and that's where you, you have the most impact when people find something accessible as opposed to filled with political jargon and filled with insider movements. That I think gets, gets less response and just doesn't find, uh, doesn't find as wide a, a resonance with the audience. I want to thank Anthony Salvanto for joining me. You can catch his coverage over at CBS News uh, on their various programs as well as cbsnews.com. And check out his book, Where Did You Get This Number? A Pollster's Guide. I've linked to it in the show notes. It's his breakdown if you want further insight into how people like him do their jobs. You can get that wherever you get your books. I want your feedback on this podcast. Please email me your thoughts, podcast at mo.news. Subscribe to the Mo News newsletter over at monews.bulletin.com. And follow me over on Instagram at Moshe at M. O-S-H-E-H. And don't forget to follow or subscribe to the show on whatever app you're listening to us on at this very moment. Hit the follow button. It'll ensure that you don't forget or you don't miss a single episode. Also, please be sure to review us in the App Store. would very much appreciate a quick review. It'll help us continue to grow the show and move up the rankings. I'll see everyone back here on Monday.